Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Vodka O'Clock. I'm your host, Amber Love, from AmberUnmasked.com. And thank you to Patreon backers, Patreon, patrons at Patreon. As always, go to Patreon.com slash AmberUnmasked, and you too can be a sponsor of the show and the site and my work. And um, you can get the first bits of information on things like the Fair Weathers Mysteries, which now there's three books out. So please go check those out. And, um, and any other projects that I'm working on. I had a little bit of a hiatus because I was off um, in the woods, <laughs> in the woods getting eaten alive by bugs. And uh, before I left, though, I took the time to read Brad Abraham's novel, Magician's Impossible. And Brad and I haven't talked in, like, forever. He was on the show four years ago. So Brad's back. Hey. I'm back. Hey, how are you? I know. Four long years. What the hell? I know, it's crazy. I know, crazy we only live like a couple hours apart, and yet I stopped going to conventions, really, so like I never see anybody. I, I stopped going to conventions, too, but that's also more life-related than, uh, yeah. than any, anything like that. So. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, it's just stuff happens. And uh, so, um, so the last time we talked, though, we were talking about mixtape and yeah. um, comics in general and things like that, so... You know, that's how we, we got to know each other and be friends is through comics. And then I was delighted to see when you got this book deal because, well, you know, the cover is amazing. So that was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, you, I don't know. I was thinking, you know, it's like a lot of my friends put out books and it's like, okay, sometimes it's just not my cup of tea. And I remember reading the like the little summary of it. And I was like, I can't wait till there's more. I can't wait to find out more. And so you, you know, this was quite a journey. You had, um, you know, from start to finish, like what, a couple years or. It, it was April of 2014 when I had my first meeting about it. Wow. And I delivered the final edited version of the manuscript in April of this year, 2017. So it was, a long three-year journey from initial discussions about it to actually being finished. Okay. And that is, um, to me, that sounds like the the older version of how publishing was done when you did, uh, you know, you presented things basically on spec. Like, here's my idea, and here's, you know, maybe a chapter or something. Um, and now it seems like a lot, there's a lot of expectation to already have the first draft done. There is. And the, the genesis of this probably goes back even further. Um, the whole concept, or let me say the whole story idea began as a bit of mangled syntax on my part. I was trying to say Mission Impossible, and it came out as Magician's Impossible. <laughs> and it was just a conversation with a with a friend, and he said, you know, you have to write that. You have to write a story about spies who use magic. And I sort of joked it off and everything, but I started thinking about it a little more. And I said, you know, nobody really has done anything quite like that. That might be fun to, to do. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I th- thought there could be something there. And what I initially did, and this would have been, oh boy, back in 2011 or 2012, was wrote a, a, a full-length manuscript called Magicians Impossible, but it was much different from the one that you read and the one that's coming out. This one took place in pre-World War I, um, and it was about a team of magicians recruited by a secret service. But they were not so much magicians, you know, like Harry Potter, Magic Wheelie thing. It was more illusionist. It was more Harry Houdini, spy master type thing. You had a... a, a Slight a hand artist, and you had a strong man, you had an acrobat, and a master of disguise. People who were recruited, kind of like from that music hall vaudeville. Uh, well, that uh, sounds world. cool too. Do that one too. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I get too far, <laughs> that's a spoiler alert. Um, but I, I'd written it and was pretty was pretty happy with it. It, it, it had its strengths and its weaknesses, but um, I'd uh, gotten into shape and I was comfortable with querying it, and um, I submitted it to an editor at St. Martin's Press who used to be my agent, and I knew him even prior to that, back when he was a development executive at at the Weinstein Company, and uh, he read it, and he, he liked it, but he passed on it. It didn't really fit with what 
they were uh, were doing over there. But what happened with him was he was discussing just ideas uh, with a with a colleague, and uh, his colleague said, "You know what I've never seen is something like Harry Potter meets James Bond, where it's you know taking the tropes of the spy thriller and melding it with 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 magic." Mm-hmm. And I've, I've never seen anything like that. And uh, the editor said, I have the perfect title for that. And then he said, it, Magician's Impossible. And everybody thought that was a great title. He said, okay, he kind of explained who I was and what the book I submitted was and everything and why he passed on it. But he contacted me and said, do you want to grab lunch? This is April of 2014, backtracking to that point. And he said, you know, Let's have, let's have lunch. I want to talk to you about some stuff. And we sat down and had lunch. And he said, do you think your manuscript, Magicians of Possible, you could change it to make it real magic and, and set it in the present day? And I said I'd think about it. But even in, in the back of my mind, I knew I wasn't going to be able to reverse engineer that particular manuscript, just that the world had changed too much and the mechanics had changed too much. But I came back with, well, why don't I just draft a new idea? What would you need? And he said, well, you know, the old school way, which is just if you can give us a few chapters and an outline, I can probably get the publisher on board. And that's what I did. That was April of um, 2014. I didn't actually submit the chapters to him until September or October, I think, because I was going away to Scandinavia for 10 days and I was kind of up against the clock and I set the pages out to him and said, okay, I'm away. And I hopped on a plane and left the continent. And when I came back, uh, he'd read it and really liked it and had some suggestions and some edits to make, which I didn't send it back to him. And on on Halloween, October 31st, he emailed. He said he'd spoken to the publisher, and the publisher thought it was a great concept and thought the chapters were great and everything. And they basically said, let's go do this book. And that really kicked things into high gear. That's fantastic. And it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I, I, I have so little patience for the process like that. And, um, it, you know, the, the years in development thing, it mm-hmm. just, it makes my heart hurt. You know, yeah. it's like, I have this idea. I just want it done. Like, <laughs> like poof, done. So The funny thing, the funny thing for me was I, I, it, I loved the fact that I had three years <laughs> to do it because coming, coming from the film world, you'd never have that much time right. to write something. No, no film producer or production company is going to cut you a check and let you go off for a year and not communicate with them and just kind of work on your own. To me, having all that time was a luxury. And I needed it because exactly a week after St. Martin said, we're going to publish this book, my wife came home with an ultrasound picture saying, congratulations, <laughs> you're going to be a father. So that they happened literally right on top of each other. And she said, the due date is this date. And all of a sudden, I just saw that, you know, life was going to get a lot more complicated. Um, and... I was dealing with a, a much quicker deadline than the one the publisher was going to get me. <laughs> once, once the baby is born, all things like sleep and even just finding the time to write becomes much more of a challenge. Um, but at the same time, you know, that was just something that really informed the book. The book changed a lot from that initial outline to the version you read, and that is largely attributed to the fact of becoming a, a, a father halfway through. I noticed that, yeah, in your um, dedication, you you make that a point, and then as as people read the book and and get to get to know these characters, um, the father son dynamic is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, that 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 kind of grew out of like one thing kind of informed the other. The the fatherhood thing on my end informed that because when I started when I pitched the story and outlined it. Fatherhood was not very, not a very big part of my my life, or even just the thought of it. But um, so, writing the story, at, at first it was going to be just about what the main character, Jason Bishop, and his his perspective is the son's perspective on the world that his father knew. Uh, but when I found out I was becoming a father, and then when the reality happened, I, I had to step back and try to look at it from the father's POV as well. I kind of had to think of you know, the choices he made and the sacrifices he made, the decisions he made to keep his child safe from these warring forces that, that had their own nefarious plans for him. So it, it really forced me to put a lot more of myself into this 
book than I initially anticipated. I mean, there's always a part of you in anything you write, I think. I think that's the key mark of, or the hallmark of good writing, is that there's something of you in it. But I, I, when I started this, I had no idea, you know, the, the, the twists and turns that my life was going to take and the twists and turns the story was going to take as the two of them kind of blended together. It's it, it's interesting that, you know, when you're, you're bringing up, um, as we as we talk about the characters, I'll just ex- explain without spoiling. Um, so we have Jason, who's the son, and um, and he's in this world. Our world is mundane life. Um, he seems constantly bored. Um, his girlfriend's kind of pestering him a lot that he's not moving forward or, or anything. Um, and his whole life, he had this all this resentment about his father being basically a deadbeat. You know, he would come around once in a while, stay for 10 minutes and say, here's a present and take off. And, you know, that's sad truth for, I think, enough people to relate to. But it's like you didn't even need to be in Jason's position to feel for this guy. Like, oh, God, that must be so shitty. And and yet you didn't – you didn't pull the, you know, Bruce Wayne, Spider-Man and Superman thing where it was like, oh, the parents died tragically and the kid's an orphan and, um, you know, things that we're used to in the superhero world. So, um, but Jason's raised by an aunt and an uncle and, uh, and there is this world he didn't know about. And it's sort of like the way you were saying, like, you, there's this world of parenting that you didn't know about. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean that was just one of the things that I guess kind of informed the story was trying to make it real, which I think was also important when you're dealing with a story that deals with the fantastic. I, I felt it needed a, that kind of grounding and, and family relationships, and it's not just Jason's relationship with his father. Um, it's every character's got these weird familial relationships, everybody from Allegra and Teo and, and uh, Abigail in particular, you know, they, yeah. they, they, their, their family histories and their family stories do come up a bit. You kind of see that, I, mean, I can't remember who, who it was who said that all families are miserable in their own way, or if I'm paraphrasing it correctly, but it, it's, it's kind of like that. It's, it's the, uh, you know, it's, it explains what, who these, these mages and these, these conjurers are. They're, they're, they're all orphans in a way. Um, whether by choice um, or, or not, yeah. and they, 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 they kind of come together in, a, in this almost weird, sometimes little twisted family units. It's actually one of the one of the points that I that I picked up on was because no matter where Jason is, whether it was looking back at Jason's childhood or um, you know his adult years with this girlfriend, or as he goes away to this, uh, you know, real, like, lockdown institutional environment to study magic, uh, it's like Jason's for, just surrounded by family drama and friendship drama. Like, you know, mm-hmm. every single connection to him tests him. And at the same time, as you said, all of these other characters have their own crap going on, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, like... Um, Allegra, who's very key and a very interesting character. I loved her mm-hmm. so much. Uh, we get these little bits at a time, these little flashbacks of of what Allegra went through. And, you know, when you get the bigger picture, it's, you know, it's the same thing as with, you know, whether it's a, a villain mm-hmm. that you feel sorry for or sympathetic towards or something like that. I mean, some villains you don't. You just see them as villains. And I, I don't even consider Allegra a villain, but she's, no. but she's an opponent. She's an antagonist. Um, and, and it was their dynamic together as they were getting to know each other and everything. And then, and then for the finale, I think is one of the like the greatest things of the whole book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was, it was something that I was at least mindful of or, or trying to be mindful of when I was writing it was, uh, you know, not to, not to spoil the book for people out there who haven't read it yet, but, uh, uh there were, there's a fair number of twists and turns, uh, Lots, throughout the story. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and there's and there's one. Speaking of families, you know, like there's there's, there's one very big, yes. big 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 twist that happens with it. But um, the one thing I really wanted to focus on, uh, which made it challenging, but I think in a good way, was to not draw the characters as as purely good or purely evil. Um, the uh, there's a a character who's an oracle who uh, Jason goes to see. Uh, Someone who's looking at the past and dig deep into your own, into your own mind and own thoughts and, and, and dredge up memories you've forgotten you had. She was really interesting. And I liked I liked that character. Vasilisa, yeah, and that and that was just a, something I wanted to do to kind of demonstrate that we're we're all we all come from different backgrounds and in a way we're all kind of looking for the same thing. You know, we're looking for a, a sense of place in the world. We're looking for a place to call home. Um, you know, J- Jason, at, at the start of the story, you know, he, he's, he's kind of lost his home. He is kind of adrift. And the fact that he's become so tied to the past and so tied to his his childhood and the, the events and the triumphs of his early teenage years, which become a major part of the story, uh, you know, we all do come from some place. And we've all had experiences that kind of make us who we are. But one thing I could never really rectify, and even even with the whole premise of having to warring factions of the Invisible Hand on one side, which are sort of natural-born magic wielders, and there's the Golden Dawn, who are more like your traditional witches and warlocks, people who delve into arcane knowledge to to learn the mysteries of the universe. Uh, I I didn't want them to be, one side to be overtly good and one side to be overtly bad. Um, I wanted them to just be, you know, conflicting ideologies, kind of clashing against each other, and Characters have been locked into a war for so long they don't quite realize or they've forgotten why they're fighting. So that, that was the real challenge was how do you tell the story that uses those, those, I guess we'll call them YA tropes about the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the special, the, the special child who's the, uh, you know, who's, who's rumored to be the big savior and, you know, there's the ongoing battle between good and evil and, the forces of darkness gathering, and I kind of wanted to step back from that and maybe examine those tropes from a different way. It's like, what if Harry Potter never got his Hogwarts letter and was 29 going on 30 when all of a sudden it turns out, oh, by the way, you know, yeah. this, this, this owl got lost in the mail. You're <laughs> supposed to be doing this, and you get sort of a crash course into the secret society that you technically should have been in, inducted into when you were 12 or 13, and everybody who's there uh, is, is younger than you, and a lot more talented than you are, and you're kind of having to play catch up. So even when he goes into this secret society where he feels like finally I belong somewhere, and he, and he doesn't belong somewhere because these people have been living and breathing magic ever since they were children, and, he, and he's just kind of discovered it and, and kind of fallen into it. So you know, and he, there's a, there's a lot of catch up that he has to do, and he has to learn from from these people who are from different you know different cultures, different backgrounds, different ethnicities. And, you know, it's kind of an eye-opener for her, for him on his journey, which, to me at least, isn't necessarily about him becoming a mage. It's about him, it's about Jason Bishop becoming Jason Bishop. It's not so much the magic, it's what the magic leads him to discover about himself. Yeah, I love, um, the you know, the way that you talk about playing catch-up, because I, you know, we're talking here about this world of magic, and yet I know I've, felt that way and I've talked to other people who felt that way as being writers or people working in comics where you know suddenly you're in your late 30s and or 40s and and you're like oh my god but you know that publisher just hired this like 22 year old right out of school and and I'm still you know still busting my ass over here and and it's and it just has that same feeling that playing catch up like how do I now like whatever my last 20 years were, how do I now like make them count (laughs) in retrospect? And and it's like, and still put out content, still put out something creative. Yeah. I feel, I feel the same way about myself in my own career. And I mean, I've been a writer for practically 20 years now. So uh, I guess I've I've been at it long enough to, to, to think that I, I'm sort of on top of things and, I know what I'm doing, and I know what I'm getting myself into. And I, I even said to my agent, my book agent, I told her right at the top, I said, I'm going to warn you right away, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing here. I 
I just don't. That's the, the literary world, the book world is completely alien to me. Just like the comics world was alien to me when I when I when I did mixtape, and I, I see it now. I see people who are half my age who are landing these big deals, and I see it with my film and television work when I go in for a a pitch meeting or a development meeting or whatever, and the development executives are 10 or 15 years younger than I am. When I started out, it was they were, they were 10 or 15 years older than me. And it just seems like I've, you kind of jump past. And that's the thing that kind of bakes my brain a little is, you know, I was, you know, I graduated or I was in film school when this person was in, in elementary school. And <laughs> now, now, I'm, now I'm going to them to try to, to position myself for a job. And, you know, they see dozens of guys like me a day. So, that's, I guess, maybe a little more autobiographical in the Terrifying. detail in the story. But that's, I think that's just what it is. It's, it, that was sort of what, one of the things I wanted to explore was where I was in my life at this time. And, you know, we mentioned the fatherhood thing. The book is dedicated uh, to my son. And I'd like to think, you know, someday, many years from now, he may pick the book up off the, off the shelf and decide to read it just to find out what was going through his dad's mind when, he was doing those 3 a.m. feedings and you know, <laughs> trying to, you know, trying try, try, try to trying to keep him out of trouble and stuff like that. It's it's interesting though because um, there's this gender bias, you know, that when people are interviewing women, whether it's politicians or executives or you know writers, and they're like, oh well, how do you you know how do you raise your child while you while you do this? And and people are like, how come we don't ask men that? And it's like yeah. and it's just funny because the men that I that I talk to bring it up, you know, usually on their own. They're just you know, they're like, yeah, I love you know. It's like hard and it's you know, and you do what you have to do. And it's like, you know, they. It's like sometimes we. It is, it's a matter of like, oh my gosh, how do we schedule this and how do we schedule an interview unless they're they're writing time and there's a yeah, couple yeah. a couple folks that I know that do that really late at night writing mm-hmm. that okay everybody's quiet 10 p.m. they start writing oh god yeah i could I, never do that. i could never do that yeah. what, what i found what worked for me was um, and, and still does is i'll 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 drag myself out of bed around 6 in the morning and that, that usually gives me a couple hours of straight uninterrupted writing time mm-hmm. uh to at least get stuff done before before people everyone else in the house starts waking up and Going about their day, but once once he's had his cereal and had his Sesame Street, we go out to the playground and or go to the park or go to any of the museums in the area and and whatnot. And I just kind of just try to turn my brain off and do dad time. But I, I'm not really turning my brain off because if he's playing on the slide or the swings or whatever, I know there's a part of my brain that's just still turning over what I was working on in the morning. And then when we get home and lunch is eaten and the nap begins, that gives me an under, a little stretch in the afternoon to pick up where I've left off. Um, and well, that, Plus, walking away can sometimes really help. You know, you don't, oh, want to, you don't want to stop when you're in the middle, like in the middle of something really juicy, but at the same time, it's like taking the break is so healthy. <laughs> it is, and sometimes the best time to take the break is right in the middle of some big moment and that and that that predates fatherhood even back you know before i if i was ever stuck on a plot point or just something was not happening that that would be my cue to get up and get dressed and get my shoes on and go for a walk and inevitably i'd say 99 percent of the time by the time i would get home i would have the, the the problem figured out just the act of walking and blood circulating to your brain giving it more oxygen you can usually land on on the moment there. But with now the challenge is just I only have a certain little pockets of time during the day to write, whereas before I could spend the entire day just sort of staring off into space and trying to figure it now. It's like, you know, kids down for his nap, boom, I get my, my mug of tea and I go sit at my desk and I write for three hours or, you know, however many hours I have to to to, to get stuff done. And if there's one thing I could say I've really noticed is the amount of time I spend in a day writing is probably about half what it used to be, but I feel like what I'm writing is much stronger because I have less time to screw around or daydream. I kind of have to hit the hit the ground running and just get stuff done. So 
it's it's been a pretty it was a difficult adjustment, but I think in the end it's probably made for made me a much better writer. Yeah, I hear that from people um, who who try to do things like the NaNoWriMo challenge and. Um, you know, when they're, or if they, you know, they finally commit to the writing process, which, you know, is the big first step. You can't keep saying, I have yeah. an idea for a book, I have an idea for a book. It's like, right now, I know I want to write another book, and I have no ideas. Like, mm-hmm. it's not that I have none, I just have, I don't have any plots. I have all these yeah. great little itty-bitty ideas now that the last one's done. It's like, uh, okay, so I look forward to that time when I buckle down, and I'm like, yeah okay, it's, I don't do it by hours usually, I, you know, I'll, I'll usually do it by words, like, you know, try to get to 1,000 or try to get to yeah. 2,000, whatever it is for the day, yeah. and it just, uh, it, it's, I feel, I feel the accomplishment better when there's structure like that. You do, you do, and just like, I guess, your motivation as well. When I was writing this, I was trying to think, especially after the, the baby was born, but even before then, I was thinking, okay, how much do I need to get done a day in order to make delivery deadline? I had about a year from when we signed the contracts to when I delivered it. Uh, oh, wait, no, that's not true. I had nine months. I, I, sh- I should have asked for a year, but I had nine months. And I, I asked for nine months because I thought to myself, well, if I have a year, I might waste too much time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas if I only had, you know, nine months to write it, um, that would be sort of be keeping a fire under you to keep you going. Because, you know, I will admit, those first few months of fatherhood was life-draining. Because <laughs> I, was, I was getting up at five in the morning to write, um, I would go to bed at 11 at night, so that'd be a nice six hours of sleep. Um, but during the day, I had the, I had the, the baby to look after. He wasn't on any nap schedule at the time. It was a feed schedule, and I just had to kind of get work done when I could. But a lot of times, the only writing I would get done in a day would be between 5 a.m. and 8 a.m. And then once my wife was off to work and I was home with the baby, like I was, I was home with the baby. I wasn't doing anything else. And that was really difficult because... I wanted to write. I wanted to keep the ideas going, but I just, I just did not have the, 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 the stamina, I guess, to say to, to do that or to kind of have him sleeping in my lap and, 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 and typing one-handed. And it was funny to look at after I finished the draft because I started writing it obviously before the child was born. And when I was going through my draft with my red pen and making changes, I could almost to the exact paragraph I could pinpoint exactly when we went to the hospital oh because everything everything after that just went to total shit <laughs> it seemed like there was it's like you could see the drop off in quality things were a little sketched in and it was not my best word whereas the first half is pretty strong and but the the good part about that is it, it, it forced me to take a much closer look critical look at the story and I don't know again not wanting to give too many spoilers away but you know, every every great spy story has a, a a great sort of midpoint set piece mission. Um, so you'll know what I'm talking right. about. But in the original draft, everything after that mission happened in a much different way. Um, in fact, the entire you know, pretty much the entire second half up to the conclusion of the story was completely different. And it was just, I think, the fatherhood thing and just being forced to, to think a little more critically about what I was presenting and you know, realizing that the story I thought I was telling initially isn't the story I wanted to tell. And I really wanted to tell the story of this guy and his relationship with his parents. And that's why this story you have now is much more circular, where it begins with Jason on a train, it ends with him in a similar circumstance. It begins with a funeral and it ends with a funeral. Um, you know, he he, he kind of goes goes full circle, pretty much, almost exactly. His journey into the world of magic mirrors his journey out of the world of magic and back into into our reality. If if, if you if you look at the book uh, really closely, and that was all a, a direct result of becoming a father and having this child and not having time to write. So when when you are dedicating your your time to writing, is it specifically just you know, like there at your desk or, or do you take it on the road and travel? Cause I see, I love your, you know, your Instagram is very wonderful <laughs> to follow. 
And um, so you have all these landmarks all over New York. And I didn't know if, you, you know, if part of your um, exploration of the city involved, hey, I'm just going to take you know, the iPad or whatever and go, you know, put the kid in the buggy and, <laughs> and take off and go right somewhere, if that's, if that's part of it or if it's even possible. Um, it is part of it in a way, and not, not so much that I would take the iPad or a laptop and go sit somewhere in the, in the park while he's napping his stroller or anything. Um, I, I, if I have little ideas that will occur to me, I'll, I'll, I'll just type them into my iPhone. But I still very much treat writing as, I guess, as a, as a job. Uh, so for me, writing time is time spent at my desk working stuff out. Um, but then for me, at least, and I know that's probably the case for you and a lot of other writers, the, 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 the physically sitting down at the desk and writing is sort of the last step in the process. Mm-hmm. Where I can I can do some work in the morning, take the kid to the playground, and but be constantly thinking about where am I going to go next? This is happening with the, the thing I'm working on right now, where I'll have the, the book I'm writing right now, which has will have like a paragraph. Here's what happens in this the, this chapter, but I have no idea how I'm going to get into it. I have no idea how I'm going to get out of it. But usually by the time I'm I've, I've, I'm sitting down at my desk, once the kid's down for his nap, I can just start writing and usually have it figured out uh, by the time I get by the time I get to the desk. You know, it's sort of maybe I can turn it this way, maybe I can turn it that way, maybe scrap some ideas down. But uh, now I try to keep my writing limited to um, desk time because I used to, I, well, I used to be the guy who you know would write constantly and work constantly and with a family you kind of have to give yourself equal amount of time with them uh, because it's good for them and it's good for you as well because that's how you get burnt out I think and I've I've always been wary of the writers who say you have to write something every day you can't let it go for you yeah I've discussed that a lot with people and and there's a a good portion of us that are not you know committed to it every single day that it's you know we have a schedule but you know we like our weekends off or something I do. I do too. I like I like weekends with my family. I like weekend week nights with my family. And a, a lot of times, I would years ago, I would just I would write every day. When I first started writing professionally, my, my first big job, I worked every single day. It was Mondays through Sundays, you know, seven days a week, every day of the month. Yeah. And I got I, I managed that okay for about a year and a bit, year and a half. But then I. I hit a wall. Like I literally burnt out, and I I didn't do any writing for about three or four months. And that sucks. Just, yeah, it, it does suck. And I said, you know, and the, the advice I got was from another writer. It said, look, you don't have to do it every day. I know you, the reason you're doing it every day is because there's a party that fears if you don't do it every day, you're going to lose the plot, and you're going to not be able to get back into it. And I said, just schedule some time, give yourself the weekend off, and you're going to probably find that your writing overall is going to be much better than it would be if you just went in it constantly. Um, and that's not to say that the, the mood strike doesn't strike me on a, on a Saturday or a Sunday morning where if I'm just at, in, near my desk and thinking of something, just deciding to sit down and start writing something. Like this, this actually happened last night where after dinner and I just had an idea for something else and went to sit down and the next thing I knew I'd written about six or 700 words without really trying to. So, you know, but once you're... Uh, I think once you're committed to a story and, and once you know where you want to go with it, you can pretty much pick it up any time and, and start writing it. You don't necessarily have to do it every single day. If, right. But if definitely, you, don't want de- you know, unless unless you are somehow have that superpower, definitely write down the things when they come to you because so many times, you know, it's like you're tired or if, you know, if you're driving, obviously you can't just like stop and write. But it's, <laughs> You know, there are those moments where it's like, oh, I've got this, you know, I've, I've got this thought and I need to get it down. And you're like, no, no, I'll remember, I'll remember. And then, of course, you don't. Yeah. And so last night that happened to me where I, you know, this whole big stupid thing was happening. And I'm like, okay, I need to just, like, chill. You know, I took a hot shower, grabbed my journal and, and hand wrote. Uh, probably, you know, they're sentences, but they're not good sentences, sure. <laughs> you know, just to get it out of my system so that I could sit in bed and just and just have it down. Because 
there were details I didn't specifically want to forget. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that way when I sat down today, it's like, okay, bam, how can I, you know, I already know where I'm starting this. I already know what the ending is. And this is like, you know, the my my cat stories, which are actually yeah. like real yeah. real life stuff, and um, and I just try to make them funny, and yeah. uh, you know, so it's like you know, it's like you know, well, here goes two thousand words. It's like thank God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 always a relief when that happens. It doesn't happen often, certainly not for me, but <laughs> it does happen. But you know, again, I think it's important for a writer to live kind of a well-rounded life because uh, if, if it's and you, and you got you got to get out and you got to do stuff, whether it's like you in a yoga retreat or for me, it's travel. Um, you know, I, I love traveling. Um, I have a I'm the, the Magicians Impossible book tour is taking me out to L.A. at the end of September and we're kind of turning it into a, a family vacation. Oh, nice. Um, but well, reading, of, reading the book was like traveling the world. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is I mean, I I. This is predates Magicians Impossible, but I went to uh, my wife and I went to Paris in 2011. I and, could tell uh, that you had been there. Yeah, and we we you know, we went to the Louvre, we did the Jardin des Tuileries, we did the Paris Catacombs, we did Montmartre and Montmartre Cemetery, all of which appear in the book. And if I hadn't gone to Paris, I wouldn't have had any of that stuff in the back of my mind. Uh, that uh, that ended up in the book. You know, we took a little side trip to Sweden as well. And you know, if I hadn't gone to those places and experienced all that, I would not have had those memories that I could I could dig into and 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 go with. So I think I think for a writer in particular, you need to not necessarily hop on a plane and go to Europe or anything like that. But it, it can be something as simple as just venturing into the next town, or mm-hmm. you know, here you know, going a couple towns over, or going, you know, for a hike in the woods or something like that. Just doing something that changes your routine and changes your your perspective on stuff. You never know where the next story is. It could be right around, it could be the next street over from where you are, and it just, you just happen to pass it on a certain day and go, oh, hang on, this is kind of cool. So when I was in Paris and everything, I thought, well, you know, this is something I'm going to just keep in mind and at a later date, if I have a story idea for something, I can maybe see if there's something I can use for it. And, you know, sure enough, Magicians Impossible comes along, and I was outlining the story, thinking, hey, this is a great opportunity to go to the Louvre and to go into that sculpture garden with all those great statuary and everything and, and, and have, a, have a set piece. I always pictured when I was standing in there and envisioning what would happen if these statues started doing stuff. What, what kind of story could I put that in? That was a great scene. Thanks. Yeah, that was <laughs> it was... Uh, I was I was just like oh my god this is you know it's like I could just I could picture everything in my head and I'm like and yet I know if there was a movie it would come out yeah. different and you know because I love I love those kind of like action movies things like the Mummy and mm-hmm. um, you know and Harry Potter had plenty of it too uh, it's it's that energizing uh, the magic it's the mag- you know putting the magical realism into into play I mean in cartoons have done it forever because. Yeah. You know, like some of our, uh, like, DC villains and superheroes and stuff have, have different magical powers. And, and uh, um, I can remember big scenes like that in the cartoons. So it's, it, I love the, I, I don't think this would be a spoiler, but I remember, um, <clears throat> I remember when Joss Whedon was, was talking about the making of the Buffy TV show, about how mm. expensive it would be to, uh, like, to have all of these vampires slayed and then it's like, well, do you have a cleanup crew? Like, what do you do? <laughs> so in order to basically save time, save budget and everything, they're just like, they're just going to poof into dust. Boom, done. Yeah. And you have this, you know, this wonderful magical correction. Yeah. Like, it's the real world and people know, but they only know it for like, you know, that men in black thing. They only know it for yeah. just like that moment. Like something happened, but they're not sure. Yeah, well, it's, it's like magical déjà vu, yeah. I guess is what they call it. But again, that that goes back into a lot of the research I did on the book because I wanted it to. I want. I didn't want the magic just to be. Oh, I just you know pulled a bunch of stuff out of my ass. I I wanted it to have some sort of basis in. It sounds weird to say real magic. Um, no, I was going to ask just, you about that. Yeah, just the traditional, just what the traditions, the, the magical traditions through throughout history was. Um, 
And the one thing that really kind of helped crystallize it, it actually, there was a practical reason for me to try to figure out, because I was trying to figure, okay, so the invisible hand, they have their citadel, their hidden fortress where they teach magic. And like, well, where exactly would that be located? Is that near Hoboken? Is that, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> on yeah, some under, island? Exactly. Under, under, under New, New Jersey, just like in yeah. Hellboy. <laughs> yeah, like in, in Hellboy in, in Newark. And yeah. I thought, well, that doesn't quite work. Um, I wanted to do something a little bit different. And when I started digging through a bunch of old books I had on folklore, mythology, and magic, and it was um, this whole idea that these things called soft places, which I know I know Neil Gaiman has written about a lot of times, where the the the, the borders between the magical world and the human world are very thin. Um, that's you know, the great old mythological tales. Uh, you, you know, a traveler who happens just to wander into a magical land because the the, the border uh, between his world and that world had, had weakened, and that was kind of the impetus to to, to create this this fortress in this world that kind of exists alongside our own that you can get to if you know the right doorway to get in and, and to get out. And, you know, that was sort of what informed everything. Cause I wanted to go through and say, okay, well, what, you know, could a sorcerer enchant statues to life? You know, how does one you know, hide in the shadows and all that stuff? Because I, I knew I had to build the, the, the magic from the ground up, but I wanted it to at least have some sort of connection with established folklore just to give it a little bit more authenticity right and you know and it's it's interesting the 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 path that you did choose to research and and put and include in the book because i'm you know i'm one of today's real witches and Mm -hmm. so when i saw things like golden dawn in the headlines you know in the last year and i'm like wait what and i go and it's like now it's the name of a terrorist organization it's like oh my god are you kidding me but, yeah. um, you know, it's separate from the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. <laughs> yes. You get that early part in there. And, uh, you know, so when I was reading this, at first I was like, I wasn't going to be mad at you, but I'm like, oh, <laughs> did he make these guys villains? I'm like, oh. And then, you know, and there's a little, like, nod about what a loon Aleister Crowley was, because he really was. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but I, I, I just, I liked that there was this, you know, the, this sanction, this group of, of like, I don't know, a sanctuary for people mm-hmm. run by, you know, one particular woman who just decided, she's like, look, there's, they're studying it and they're learning how to use it and they weren't born with it, so why can't they exist? Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, the people, the the, the born mages who are, you know, Grew up with, with the superiority, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and that, and that gets back into just in, into mythology. I mean, there's the the, the Faust Faustus myth uh, of you know delving into the black arts and the 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 story of the uh, the, the the schools of the dark arts scattered throughout uh, the, the the world where where, where Satan is the uh, the schoolmaster and you're studying in the darkness. Like, but those all come from like, actual folklore type stories so I, mean, I, was, I was trying to pull stuff from mm-hmm. things that were all uh had been established and, uh, just and to, even but like as you said there you know you have these characters from all different parts of the world so all di- all different countries and ethnicities yeah. come together and and one of the things that you see when you take the time to actually do this research and and or take a, a couple classes or something in it is is the similarities it's like it's hard to necessarily say, oh, this one stole from this one and stole from that one, because there, people have been, you know, trading and crossing borders forever, and mm-hmm. you know, the stuff is bound to intersect at, at some particular level. It's like it's going to have a root, but I've, you know, just like the fact that there's pyramids in South America and pyramids in Africa, you know, these things happened. Just on the, you know, naturally, they happen. Yeah. They happen because the human development. So whether you're talking about, oh, this person calls, you know, this half goat creature Pan, but this person calls it 
a devil and then this person, mm. you know, calls it Beelzebub or what like, you know, you start dissecting where all the roots of the names come from. And you know, and you find the these common threads about how how they start merging. Somebody even asked on Twitter the, the other day. They're just like, mm. "Okay, what the hell? Like, I is I I always thought Lucifer was the devil, and now people are telling me he's not. And it's like, no, they're different things. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. so you have you know, like, all the pagans start chiming in. <laughs> like, yeah, pagan Twitter. <laughs> yeah, pagan Twitter. Pagan Twitter goes. Pagan Twitter to the rescue. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and I'm glad you touched on the, the the different cultures aspect too, because that was something I really wanted to make sure I was addressing. Was you know, I mean, we we can talk about diversity in 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 books and in, in storytelling till you know, till the cows come home, I guess you could say. But right. I, I wanted to make sure that everybody wasn't just the I guess you call it the Jason Bishop default, sort of the Caucasian North American. Mm-hmm. Character um, in, in my mind, I figured you know if, if, a, if a, mag- a person with magical ability is one percent of one percent of people on Earth, they all wouldn't be that default. You know, there'd be people from the Middle East, there'd be people from from Africa, Asia, mm-hmm. and also looking at that, I'm not sure what the exact number is, but there's more. You know, the, the the female population outweighs the male population on Earth, so it made more sense for me that that the majority of mages, or a large number of the mages you'd meet, would be women, too. And that that in particular was a very deliberate choice, because uh, it, on, on, on one level for Jason, um, again, not going into spoilers again, but, um, you know, growing up without a mother, so there are these, these, these mother figures in a way around him. There's Allegra, and there's, there's uh, um, Vasilisa, the Oracle and uh, several others as well, um, but that was that it was, it was deliberate for his character, but also just deliberate for the story and I guess where I hope to take the story. Assuming this one does well enough that there's demand for more. Hopefully, yeah, yeah. Because I, there's there, there are the, the book ends pretty conclusively for some characters, but there's there's enough out there's there enough that the book could continue. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't trying to write. Fellowship of the Ring and saying, okay, now we're, you know, another book and another book. I, I, I don't know if I've got the other the other the, the capacity or even just the, the the good sense to say this is book one of a of a series. I, okay. I kind of took the George Lucas Star Wars approach when he did Star Wars originally. It was just Star Wars. It wasn't Episode Four. It wasn't. I know. Book. I correct people just, all the time. I'm like, it's just Star Wars. <laughs> Basically, basically, but that that was the attitude I took with this. Is yeah. This is Star Wars. This is one character's journey, yeah. and it really is his journey. And now that his journey's kind of come full circle, if if there is to be more in, the, in yeah, the series, you really don't know because we could have a conversation thirty years from now, and and we could be talking about Jason Bishop's great great grandchildren, you know, yeah, or prequels or prequels. Yeah. You're talking about, you know, besides his father you know talking about what came yeah. before and and it would be it would be interesting and i like the new star wars movies that are coming <laughs> yeah well i think i also know that the, the there's other stories and some characters you get glimpses of uh, that haven't yet been told that i'd like to get a little more into and, and frankly a lot of that was just because stuff ended up in, in film terms on the cutting room floor i sure. i had a i had a, 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 big a cast. yeah i had it's a big cast and i i, I wanted to give everybody at least some bit of a backstory, and, and in some cases it's very explicit, as they say, told in the case, uh, as it is with uh, Allegra, uh, or shown with Allegra, and with with Abby, it's something she tells. And even with a, 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 a character like uh, Katya, who's a, a sort of a shape-shifting enchanter who can disguise herself as, as other people, there's, there's, a, there's a story behind this scar she has on her on her, on her lip that uh, she can't quite enchant away, and you get little glimpses of it later on, and that's that's a very bigger a big piece of her backstory and kind of explains who she is. But again, I didn't have the time, I guess you could say, which sounds weird to say in a book because in a book you have as much time as you want to tell. But in order to tell the story in a way that was going to at least keep yeah. keep the pieces moving, I didn't want to stop everywhere and say, "Well, here's how I got this scar" or anything. You kind of yeah. want to infer it, and I think through her character and her actions and the way she relates to other people, particularly Jason, you know, you can probably put two and two together and get an idea of what her story was and why she is the way she is without her, uh, you know, spelling it out for you. Because I like 
stories that leave things a little ambiguous and a little, a little, uh, you know, murky. Um, I don't like things to be completely clear in, in, in some instances. Or I like the reader or the audience or whatever to kind of infer or ask the question, why is that? Why is I lo- that? Yeah, I love that there's opportunity to ask questions, questions on different things. I mean, and, you know, as you, you know, you've mentioned Harry, Harry Potter and things like Lord of the Rings and, um, you know, beyond those those core epics, well, even Star Wars, even though it's in space, mm-hmm. you know, you have those core epics where the there's a, a particular galaxy you're in, a particular yeah. universe or planet or city you're in, and and then there's, you know, hopefully, as you're saying, you know, even if it's novellas or a short story to, you know, just to give people to for marketing or something, yeah. um, like, let's find out what the what more about the mages in Ireland? Like, tell me something about them. And, uh, you know, let me, let me get to know that because that's, like I said, you know, when it was obvious, the, the level of, of research and the diversity of the characters, it's, it's important to, to, I don't know, to just embrace that, that lineage and say like, well, you know, for this person's village, uh, they they attacked the person who showed magical powers, but over maybe in this village or tribe, the person was revered, and yeah, you yeah. know, and that's that's really how stuff goes down. I mean, you know, and that, and that's something that I I do have written. I mean, all the all the characters got like a, a pretty extensive biography written by me. Um, before I even put pen to paper, I had to sit down and figure who are these people, where were they born. What kind of music did they listen to? What's their favorite food? Oh, not, 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 not necessarily stuff that was actually going to wind up in the book. No. But just so, at least in my mind, I knew it. So for all the characters, for for, uh, for Carter Block, for uh, Teo Stone, uh, for Abigail Cord, uh, they, all, they all have interesting backstories. Um, and they have in, had interesting adventures uh, in the past. And, you know, that that could come into play down the road. I mean, if this if this book, Knock on Wood, becomes fabulously successful and everybody wants to know, you know, are there more stories, are there more characters, you know, then, yeah, I'd love to be able to delve back into it. This is the first thing I think I've ever written um, in my 20 years as a writer that I I could keep going back to, because most of the times you finish, I finish something, I push it out of the door, it's like, okay, next, I'm done with this, but, Mm -hmm. you know, this one, for all the challenges that I had to endure, I guess, while, while writing it, because, you know, between just the, the, the change in the family situation, but you know, I sustained a pretty nasty back injury about a month before deadline. Oh, no. And, and if, you, if, you, if, you, if you really pay attention in the book, at, at one point, Jason sustains a really bad back injury. Yes. And that was because I sustained a really bad back injury, and I was having, <laughs> these, having these painful shooting, like spasms shooting at my back. I could only, I could only uh, sit for maybe an hour at my desk before the pain became too great. And I was like, I got it to live with this damn book, so I'm just going to have to suck it up. And I just thought, okay, well, I'll just I'll work it into the book where Jason gets an injury, so oh, at least I get awesome. something out of it. But it's unfortunate, but it's so awesome. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, you know, sometimes you just got to do that. And I could have, I'm sure I could have asked for a, an extension, and they would have given it to me. But I'm, I'm, there's this for me in deadlines. There's just this this almost puritanical attitude where it's like, no, this is the deadline. I'm going to make the That's deadline right. no matter what. Right. Well, let me I just go over a couple other things before I, sure. I let you go back, before the baby wakes up. Um, uh, so with um, these wonderful, like I said, I mentioned your, your Instagram and you, you travel yeah. uh, around. Did you, I don't know if any uh, – I've talked about this app before, and, yeah. and I don't know if it's picking up steam or not, but it's called Squirrel. Right. And it's for book people, book, oh. you know, book nerds. Um, right now it's only on Apple, so I don't I don't have it on my phone. But anybody can open the desktop version to enter information. So since you are you know since you have so many real places documented in materials yeah. impossible, you could actually go in there and you could put like the Louvre or you could put the cloisters and and all of these other um, landmarks and you oh, could really? put th- put them in there and just kind of like make a little note of. Um, you know, a sentence or two about about where where this is in the book. 
That's great. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so cool. And then so people could actually like go on their own little Magicians Impossible tour. Yeah, because I mean, I did uh, even in uh, the the scenes in New York City. I mean, there's Jason's building in the book where he lives down Fulton Street. There's a specific building I had in mind uh, when I was writing it. I think okay, he lives here. And the bar he works at in Upper Manhattan, it's actually kind of an amalgam of three different bars all within walking distance of each other. And I was thinking, okay, well, he's going to work here just because it's an area that I'm familiar with. But everything mm-hmm. from the cloisters is a museum you can visit. There's the, uh, you know, there's the, uh, the, the Vassen Museum in, in, in Sweden. And again, all the stuff that happens in Paris and even the village of Cold Spring where people are going to read this book thinking I'm a native of Cold Spring, New York, but I'm right. not. Wow. I, I, I just visited it, and I really thought it was charming. And there's this really imposing-looking mountain across the river from uh, Cold Spring, and I remember asking what the name of the mountain was. And this also predates the edition as impossible. And they said, "Oh, that's Storm King Mountain." And I just liked the name. It made me think of some. It made me think of the Night on Bald Mountain sequence from Fantasia, where you know if the uh, you know the, 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 the demon is coming to life and scooping up the. The, the the ghosts and the and the ghouls and dumping them into flames and everything and I just thought you know that's a cool sounding name I want to use that in something and again all these ideas that you you pick up on your own while you're out traveling around or just doing stuff yeah kind of living life it. yeah and then that's sort of a, another part of it so I, it, it it kind of happened by accident but again if I hadn't been to Cold Spring and if I hadn't seen the mountain and learned the name Storm King I probably wouldn't have put it in the book wow. Yeah, I, I, it's really read like you knew that town, like the back of your hand. And, <laughs> no, um, I didn't. Uh, so, well, and same thing with Paris. But um, it's, yeah, those those moments from Jason's uh, adolescence, I mm-hmm. it sort of made me feel like in Stand By Me, which I haven't seen in forever, so I don't even right. remember what the movie's about. I just remember... Um, like the kids and the railroad tracks and stuff, and it's like, and that's yeah, what it yeah. reminded me of, like well, the kids that, going up to this this chute from the coal coal mine or whatever. It was like, uh. when, when when Stand by Me came out, I was I was the exact age of the characters in the movie in the years that this thing came out, and wow. but at the same time, the the age of the characters were in the the setting in the movie is the age my dad was when that movie came out, and he really likes that movie a lot, and I really like that movie a lot. And I think that that, that movie, but also the, the, the novella, The Body, that it's based on, was probably a huge influence on those sequences. But also just because I, I, was, I was 12 going on 13 when I saw Stand By Me, and my dad was 12 going on 13 when the, the, the events of Stand By Me would have taken place. So it was almost this father-son, Jason-Damon connection that kind of worked its way by osmosis into the story. But but then there was also just, it seems like age, at least, and I can't speak for, for for girls, but for boys, you know, 12, 13, that's what I like to call the age of stupidity. When, you when just, you're fearless. Yeah, you're, you're, well, you're fearless, but you're, you have enough of a sense of your own mortality that, you know, if I jump from this thing to this thing, it'll probably look really awesome or I could fall and I could die. And you know this as you're doing the jump, but you just do it anyway because you're in the age of stupidity. And for me, that whole chain of events that happens in Cold Spring when Jason's 12, going on 13, is 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 part of that whole age of stupidity. But it's also what ends up allowing him to kind of come back and save the day in the end. You know? Yeah, it's brilliant because he's had that because he's had that experience and he's had that moment of reflection. He realizes what that whole event chain of events meant. In, in, the, in the bigger scheme of things, and that, that really that's where he began his journey. It just took him a lot longer to get to the end than he expected at the time. Oh my goodness! That's well, that's great. I'm glad that there was uh, some stand by me love there. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So now the so the last thing I have for you is: Are you a, like officially on a break from comics? Are you ever coming back to comics? I'd like to come back to comics. Um, I'd like to get mixtape finished because in the case of mixtape, I did the first five issues on my own and uh, have the other five because that, that's sort of the first five is half the story. That's side A of the mixtape, I guess. And then you, <laughs> pop, you pop the tape out of the uh, deck and you turn it over and you play side B. So uh, side B has been written. Um, it is ready to go. It's just a matter of finding the, the, the money and the resources to do that. Um, I can say, um, and 
okay, so I can make the news official here on your podcast, that uh, I'm in talks with a production company about turning it into a television series. Oh, my goodness. So in the early stages of discussing sure. that, one of the reasons I agreed to, to go forth uh, with that was because I knew if a series actually does go ahead, that gives me the money and the resources to finish the comic itself. And, and complete that story. But the challenge in that is in doing a mixtape show is sort of you don't want to you don't want to do the comic. You don't want to just adapt the stories that have been written. You kinda of want to take those characters and uh, you know have some stories that are familiar to people who did read the comic, but also stories that are completely brand new. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with the comic uh mixtape, you know, each each issue focused on a different character of a recurring cast, and each each story took place in a separate month um, and dramatizes one event. But uh, for a TV series, we get a sense of what happens on the other 29 or 30 days of that particular month, and, and what else was happening. What happened the week before issue number two? What happened the week after issue number three? So it's 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 fun, and the producers are really big fans of the book, and they're keen to do something with it and do something a little different with it. They've been a lot of the stuff they were name-checking as ideas and influences are the same ideas and influences I had behind mixtape. So we'll see what happens. That's so exciting. And plus, uh, you know, I think when a lot of comic book people get any kind of option, they're out of their element, but you're, you know your way around TV. So yeah. I, yeah. Think, I think you have a huge advantage. I, I hope so. <laughs> no, it's, it's going to be fun. It'll be fun. I think it's, uh, I've been commissioned to write the, the series Bible and the pilot script so based on that we'll see if people want to give it some uh, give it some love but uh, you know it, it seems like 80s and 90s nostalgia is, is here to stay you saw it with Stranger Things and right. uh, and, and some other stuff that, that been set in that in that period but uh, um, so this is sort of along those same lines um, if you think of the movie Days and Confused or What It Wants um, um, that whole Richard Linklater kind of thing where it's more I guess those are what you'd call hangout movies. This is going to be hopefully. Yeah, I was into the John like, Hughes stuff. Yeah, yeah, kind of like hangout television, where it's not so much about, you know, what's the crisis of the week, and it's more observational. They talked about the Wonder Years a lot in the last meeting I had with them, and oh, we cool. think that's a good, that's, that's a that's a nice little uh, paradigm to follow because that was very much, very much about it, those experiences of transitioning from childhood to adulthood, and that's something that we could do with this as well, assuming that. It goes forth because, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of comics people get overwhelmed by that kind of thing, and a lot of them also go, "Oh my God, my show is going to be a series." And you're like, "No, there's so many steps you got to go yeah. through before it even gets to that point." As I've as I've found, because I have, a, I have another TV series that's in development, and right now nothing's happening with it because these things just kind of go in, in, in ebbs and flows. So you just kind of knuckle down, and that's what I'm doing. I'm just kind of I've, magicians impossible is. I guess as, as of not right now we're speaking, but when people are listening to this, it should be out in stores by now. So that's that's opening up a whole other range of experiences. That I have no idea what I'm in for. I'm in, I'm in uh, L.A. at the end of September, and then I can go up to Canada in October, and you know we'll just see where the ride takes us. But uh, in the meantime, I'm just working and writing, and you know maybe midway through the next novel I'm hoping to do, and we're hoping to get published and. Uh, and uh, it's it's been an experience. It, it challenged me in ways I never imagined possible. But uh, you know, I, I'm I'm proud of the book, and I hope people like it. Excellent. I think um, I have the pub date as uh, September 12th. Yes. So that sounds right. And yep. um, so, where can people follow you in order to get, uh, you know, stay stay in touch with all of your news and developments and well, I'm, you know, my, my pictures. Yeah, my 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 my, uh, my Twitter and my Instagram are both uh, not Brad Abraham, um, so those are pretty easy to find. My my often neglected website, I'm trying to do more work on that, and that's bradabraham.com. And uh, I'm not on Facebook, but my wife ma- made a nice little Facebook author page for me, and that's Brad Abraham on, on Facebook. So that's uh, that's it as well. And then I'm going to be releasing. The uh, Magician's Mixtape on Spotify, which is a a 50-song playlist of uh, tracks that are distilled from several other uh, 
playlists because I, I make I make music playlists when I'm writing, right. um, mostly just from perspectives of characters. Uh, and in the case of magicians, I did I did a playlist for every major character, uh, so there were a lot of them. Oh, excellent! <laughs> but the magicians mixtape is kind of I distill sort of the the best tracks or the tracks that seem to mesh best with what happens in 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 the book. So you read the book and then you can check out the playlist or you can. Uh, uh, you, know, you can read alongside, but you have to be a pretty quick reader. Um, so that's that's kind of fun, also. <laughs> I do that too, except I'm I don't really know um, that much about music, so I end up on YouTube, like yeah. looking up things and Spotify or whatever, and I I yeah. just end up like losing a whole day just to try to find you know a song or two that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because the, the the novel I'm writing right now, music it's a, it's a it's, it's another genre piece, but music is a very big part of it. Um, I can't really go any, any detail beyond that, just that music becomes very important in the story. So that's, uh, that's going to be a, a real treat. Well, that's your wheelhouse, and it's awesome. It is. It is. It kind of has – it wasn't intended to be that way. It just kind of became that that way. But, uh, yeah, it's my thing, I guess. So stay tuned, guys, and keep, you know, keep looking out for Magicians Impossible. There's probably, I think there's probably pre-orders available already. Yeah. Um, but September 12th is the official launch date, and then you could see Brad on tour somewhere, hopefully. Um, in, in Los Angeles, Orange, and San Diego in uh, end of September, and then at Baca Books in Toronto in early October. Cool. Very cool. And... Um, yeah, and find them on, on Twitter, Instagram. You can follow me on those as well. My Twitter is at Elizabeth Amber. My Instagram, which is mostly cat pictures, is Amber Unmasked. <laughs> and to support the show and to basically help me pay car insurance, um, just go to patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked, and uh, you can just add to the monthly tip jar, which you can you know change at any time, and it's greatly appreciated. Um, so, Brad, I will definitely be seeing you online. Yes. Even, even though we will <laughs> be running into each other because we're pretty conventioned out. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But Although you, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to get to New York Comic Con this year at the, the St. Martin's. Oh, for the booth? As yeah. a booth. So I'm, waiting to, I'm still waiting to find out if I'm going to be okay. lucky to be invited to come there and sign books. Okay, well, if you come closer to, like, a bookstore in uh outside the city yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, then, then i'm i'm hoping to i'm hoping to i think once once the all the main travel for the book tour right. comes in yeah like we have some really nice bookshops yeah. like in montclair yeah. and stuff so any I, I, as i said to people any any bookstore is interested in having me up for an event all they have to do is just reach out to me at my website and say hey we're interested in you coming over and, and signing some books I'm, I'm happy to do it that's awesome all right, so you guys keep your eye out for Brad's work, Magicians Impossible, and keep uh, supporting me and reading about the adventures with Gus that, that we're having. Great adventures for the cats and I uh, here in the suburb of New Jersey. <laughs> and Patreon backers get to read those adventures first. Thanks for listening, everybody.